On this podcast, it's often a theme that I recommend a book or another podcast or something to check out. And today is a, a special version of that in that I've got in my hand a book that I've read not just once, but in fact twice to go back in and pull out things that I found particularly pertinent and, and powerful the book is Back from the Edge by Luke Sutton, who listeners, I'm sure, will remember from his time as a professional cricketer. But what the book does is talk about his experiences of professional sport, but from a perspective that we're probably not expecting. Uh, and during the course of this conversation, we'll, we'll hopefully get to grips with what it is that, that Luke has said and what he's been through. And for anyone listening, uh, regardless of life experience, there's things in here that will really make you think. And the book is so open um, and honest that I would really endorse it to anyone listening, whether a sports fan or not. So first of all, Luke, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for having me on, Mark. Um, I'll start with a quote um, from the book, which which will give you a chance to, to, to explain a little bit more. Um, it pops up a couple of times and it says, where did it start and finish for me to end up here? What are you referring to there? Um, yeah, it was, it was sort of a, an overriding feeling that I had when I, when I first, on my first day in the Priory, when I was sat on my bed and and that's what I kept thinking to myself, you know, where where did it start and finish for me to end up here? Um, it wasn't kind of plan- part of my life master plan. And um, I think I once described it to somebody else as, you know, that for me, um, alcohol was, you know, I had a really, I have a, a really poor relationship with alcohol and that's why I've not drunk for over eight years now. Um, but for me, I, I described it to somebody as saying, look, if the first time you ever picked up a, a beer and drank it, you know, you got thrown in jail, lost your job, your wife left you and you lost all your money, you'd never drink again. Um, you know, you'd be terrified from it. But it, it doesn't happen like that. It, it creeps up on you very, very slowly. And that, that's exactly what happened to me. My problems with my mental health and my, uh, and my relationship with alcohol, they, they didn't just arrive, bang, one day. Um, they crept in very slowly and just escalated more and more over years and years and years. And I think that's what I mean by that phrase is suddenly my life was falling apart. I was in a, uh, an acute psychiatric hospital and I had no idea how it had all started and finished for me to, to end up here. And, um, uh, and I, I guess that's what I mean by that. I couldn't, um, it, it, it's that sort of lack of being able to put perspective on it in that moment and it's it's taken a number of years to to be able to do that yeah so i can i can only imagine that the experience of of setting foot into the priory along with the the impact of what had been happening with your your drinking the uncertainty around like you've said there why had you got here and what is going to follow from this when from from what i've read and from what i've picked up from from what you've been been saying over this period of time something that you you prized really highly in your life was being able to have control i like we all we all want that we all like the certainty that that can exist in life but that was really ripped to ripped away from you for for a number of reasons so how how have you worked on that both in 
the the setting of the priory and in and in life afterwards being able to make that balance between what you can control and what you can't and where the peace lies in between that yeah it's, it's, a, it's a brilliant question and it's it's the kind of uh it's it's been a crux for my own recovery for sure my my um my relationship with control um you know both big and small things you know where um you know like, like I've, I've written in the book I, I wanted to control everything you know because it, it felt like it gave me some certainty in life you know and I could I could feel control gave me that element of, of um, feeling like everything was in my hands and therefore I was going to be okay um, and I I was obsessed with control. I felt like if anything went wrong in the world, it was simply down to the fact that I just didn't have enough control over it. Um, and and, it, and in some ways, it gave me great strength because I I would be obsessive about things and I would I wouldn't let something go. I would you know particularly around my cricket, I would train and train and practice and practice and practice because it, it gave me that intensity and that control. You know, I wanted control over my own game, and so. I wouldn't want to describe it as all bad. It, you know, there's, it made me um, perform really well. But ultimately, in the long run, that demand for control, it started to eat away at me and it started to destroy me. And, and one of the, the other things I put in the book is, you know, our greatest strengths become our greatest weaknesses. And I, I had no idea, you know, I'm talking like it was a conscious uh, knowing of how I felt about control at the time, I didn't at all. I did. I just thought that's the way I operated. It was only when I went to the priory and completely broke down and had this pointed out to me that I could then sort of become a witness to how how much I wanted control in life. And I I think that self awareness is a really important first step. Um, just understanding when I'm behaving the way I am, why that's happening. And up to that point, I had no idea. I was just doing what I do and I was just running into trouble um, because I had this um, never-ending uh, thirst for control in, in my life. And I, I, I think the really um, simple way it was described to me, which I still very much have today, when I, when I get into difficult situations now with business or with personal life or, you know, life, life is life, isn't it? It throws up problems all the time. My way to, to balance my control is, uh, my I, I can't quite get the right words, but let me just say that my relationship with control is I just think I just have to do the next right thing. You know, whatever is the next right thing at a given moment, that's all I have to do. Worrying about... Uh, that the actual outcome of it or obsessing about the outcome is outcome is when I start to move into a territory where I'll becoming uh, hyper about having control because really that's all I'm doing I'm thinking well if, if you know I'm trying all the time to play with the outcome whereas actually all I think is I just have to do the next right thing and let the process of life just take care of itself and it, it can sound a bit deep and a bit spiritual and in, 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 in some ways it is but really that concept of just doing the next right thing in life all the time at any given moment is actually really really simple and it for me when I when I understood it and then was able to put it into practice and now I feel like after eight years it's it's almost natural for me it's a massive relief I don't have to <laughs> I don't have to worry all the time 
I just all the time just think, like, just do the next right thing and let life take its shape. Mm, yeah, yeah. And that aspect of relief is something that I know, uh, as I'm listening to you, I'm nodding away and I'm sure others will be, that when you, you place so much pressure on on yourself and that pressure from within builds up, uh, everything seems to be subject to whether you achieve it or or not and then you start looking outside of yourself to think about how others perceive you and then you place that extra pressure on you and through whatever process people take being able to take a a step away from that and realize that those things that are outside of your control uh, are things which will happen you might have some influence on them but it's uh, yeah, it is really powerful, and and a lot of people will listen and and, and not be able to understand that perhaps because they haven't had the the sharp points in their life where they've perhaps been been forced to be able to in, engage with it. Now, when I looked at, at the book, um, it's uh, the way it's laid out. It goes between your time in in the priory and recovery, as well as reflecting on points in your life that had. Uh, an important and significant role in 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 what had happened if we go all the way back to your your early years in terms of your uh, your boarding school experience and when you were you, your first sport i believe being uh, being swimming and then you picked up cricket a, a little bit later it seems that a thing which was incredibly driving as a force for you all the way through and I'm sure still is in 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 a, in a lot of ways is how successful you were linked to what your identity was so I suppose that that boarding school environment at Millfield the high performance sport environment um will have influenced that but how important has success that that elusive word been to you from a youngster all the way through to now yeah um it's been a thread uh, really really powerful thread to me and, and i think throughout my entire life and i think when i you know I, I i talk in the book about my early swimming days in peru uh and then holland and i was just a highly competitive uh child you know bordering on the um annoying um well, probably not even bordering actually my mum would say um just uh, just an ultra competitive i loved it i loved that environment and you know i think what's really important is when we talk about all, the, all of these things they can almost sound like there's a negative connotation to them you know about being highly good there isn't all, all i all i'm trying to do is place perspective on when those sorts of things get out of control and then they start to become negative and rot away at you and that and that's what happened to me so I wouldn't want anyone to think, you know, okay, my child's highly competitive, that's a bad thing. It's not at all, it's a great thing. But it, but at the same time, it just needs to be watched a little bit. And I think my journey with, and what I've tried to do is basically explain my journey and my, that thread of success as a, as a child. And then as I went through boarding school at Millfield, which was a highly competitive sporting environment, you know, which was just trying to produce the best of the best which it does, you know, regularly, I just constantly had it affirmed in me that success equaled good. You know, it's like you win, you're a winner, you lose, you're a loser. And that drove me to be successful. You know, I went into professional cricket and played the best part of 20 years. And and as a, a professional cricketer, I would argue I was nowhere near as talented as many, many other players. But that, that competitive drive... Um, for success kept me in the sport for for nearly 20 years and and then in business it's the same thing and 
and that a lot of good stuff has come out of that. You know, m- many, many brilliant, brilliant things that I would, I would, would want to do a million times over. But within it, I, I let that run away wild, and um, it became all that I was defined about. You know, success. That's what was either if I was successful, I was a good person. If I wasn't successful, I wasn't a good person. And, you know, I talk about a bit where the lead therapist in the Priory asked me what makes me happy at one point. And my answer was being successful. And, uh, you know, I look back now and, and obviously everyone gets some happiness from being successful. Of course we do. But it can't be the anchor of your happiness. You know, that's uh, it's, it's, it's totally um, bizarre, me now looking back on it. And But that's where I'd got to in my life because success meant everything so success meant i was good almost like a binary thing you know and i think i get a lot of people ask me about advice on how they would support their son or their daughter who who looks like they're going to be an elite sports person and i would say let them be as ambitious and encourage it and um you know do everything you can to support that ultra competitiveness but at the same time don't place it in their life that it's binary. You win, you're a success. You lose, you're a failure. You've got to be able to give them a broader look about what is life because eventually this sporting career will come to an end. Eventually, you know, success in whatever shape or form it will slow down. And what's left in that person then? Are they then just, you know, a, a vacuum because they all they were being driven forward by was that that need for success for, to, to, to define them. And, and that's what happened to me. And I think now I have a much broader perspective on life and I have a much bigger understanding of where my happiness comes from. And I still love being successful. I still am as ambitious with business as, I, as I've ever been. But it doesn't define me. It doesn't, when I go to bed at night, it isn't what is what makes me think, okay, I'm good, I'm a good person in the world. And I think... That's a really subtle but significant difference. And I think in a highly, highly competitive world, I think at times that perspective gets sacrificed for ambition and eventually it comes back and bites people. Yeah. And the loss and the lack, I suppose, of perspective at some points would would have contributed to to how you were you were feeling. There's mentions in the in the book around the focus on what your identity was and how that would link to success. So at, at parts it talks about you regarding yourself as um, a leader, a captain and a business owner. And from the reader's perspective, it, it felt a, a little bit like, and I, I may be wrong here, that you were you were judging yourself almost solely on the, on that identity and, and what your success was in those areas and not seeing things in a broader way. Would that be fair? That, that would be exactly right. Yeah, I, I felt like um, if those things were in place, then that justified me being a good person. And I, it was all just hooked on those sort of outside things, really. Um, yeah, I think that would be a very fair statement. Okay, and one thing which um, which came at me quite, um, it felt quite quite suddenly in the book. It took it took a turn was was a phrase that you you uh, you used which I'd never articulated it myself in this way but I've been through a, a similar set of emotions you you talk of having lost trust in life at one point when your partner suddenly died and you you had this 
this experience where you, you say that you chose not to deal with what that loss really meant and, and in some ways used it as um, a get out of jail free card for some of your, your actions with your drinking. Um, can you just elaborate a little bit on, on, on how that felt? Because people out there who are in, going about their day-to-day business, we implicitly trust life and and what we're doing but when you've put there that you lost trust in it that sounds like almost the almost the saddest thing that one could could go through yeah it was um it was uh i mean that whole uh experience of uh my girlfriend at the time dying was uh it was like a bomb arriving in my life and i I, because I just had I, what I and I can now look back on is that you know when I talk about the trust in life, if someone said, "Well, what what were you trusting?" I guess I was trusting that you know you, you we kind of move through life, we meet people, we work hard, we have children, you know, we eventually get into retirement, and then eventually you know we die, and, and we have grandkids, and, and and of course there are of course people get ill and there's disease and all of those sorts of things but but generally that's the kind of way that I kind of felt like life worked and if you're a good person good things happen to you I guess that was quite a a kind of big thing a part of it so when this happened I think that's what was lost I, I kind of it came out of nowhere and I was I was like bolted into going so this is what life can do rather than all those sort of preconceptions that I already had and um, and I, I guess that, that that's what I meant by I lost trust in life and therefore then it, it's almost like you're living I, I guess on without any um, feeling of knowing uh, uh, it's like feeling of a total uncertainty all the time and um, and you become really quite selfish and you become uh, I guess kind of uh, self-absorbed because it's all about you and um and it's it's terrifying and I didn't I, you know I didn't I wasn't able to cope with what that happening to me and um I didn't try and deal with it I just pushed it further down into me my soul I guess and um and then as time went on and you know like like you said some my behavior around alcohol became poor it became an excuse and I've had to come to peace with that kind of shame that um, it was an excuse. I would just, you know, if I ran into trouble, I'd pull that card out saying, well, this happened to me, it didn't happen to you. And really all the time I just wasn't dealing with anything. I, I wasn't actually consciously dealing with um, uh, the, the trauma have happened and everything we're talking about now. And, and it was just this poor excuse that I had. And, and part, a huge part of my recovery is being able to gain some perspective on that. Mm. Um, people may may feel that that's a, an experience that is very relatable to them or, or sometimes these things can appear a little bit more abstract particularly when for, if we use alcohol as of course as the example here a lot of people look in on the the experience of people who who seek help for um, 
how they use alcohol and whether we call it addiction or a drink problem or their interaction or behaviours related to it. And and people can sometimes look at that and feel quite disconnected from it because they would be thinking, well, I'm able to put away a few pints and it doesn't affect me in that that same way. If we explore this a, a, a touch more and go back to the start of your career as a professional cricketer, you, you talk about how when you were um, starting out, there was a, a wider prevalence of a drinking culture within the the sport. How much influence did that have on the the path that you eventually took? Um, it, it definitely had a uh, an impact immediately on me because I, I just walked into what was at that time quite a big drinking culture within cricket, and but they were my choices, you know, and I I do think I was. I was predisposed to kind of looking for something like that and, and jumping into it. But it, it was there. That's the way cricket's different now. Professional cricket is, doesn't have that same culture, but um, it definitely did then. And and I just walked into it and, and embraced it. And I felt I, it was very much part of um, where I sort of found myself. I thought that was me. This You know, I've talked about this work hard, play hard. Uh, type of persona and, and that was very much part of it I think one of the things around the drinking side of it and I, I've really tried to consciously in the book not put too many labels on things or tell people exactly well this equals a drinking problem and that doesn't equal a drinking problem and and I think and the reason I've done that is because I don't think that's helpful I don't think that side of things is helpful for society you know what 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 somebody having a, a difficulty with alcohol or a poor relationship they don't have to end up being a park bench drunk they don't have to end up drink you know brushing their teeth with whiskey because i i didn't end up there but i had a really poor relationship with alcohol which which needed to stop it was enough for me you know it was bad enough for me and i think sometimes when we, we're in these situations some people have a had capacity to drink a lot more than other people and cope perfectly fine in life and that's brilliant I have friends like that but for everyone it's different and I think sometimes for instance the phrase alcoholic or alcoholism is then used as a benchmark that people measure themselves against and, and can talk themselves into bit going okay well it's not that bad is often a phrase you know that mm. gets used but the truth is it might have got bad enough for that person a long time ago and so that's why I really try not to use those sorts of phrases because you know there will be people who will read the book who will go well I, I behave like that and, and I'm okay and I, I and that's absolutely fine I don't I don't try and just try and lecture them to say oh no no you know you need to stop now I don't know what's right for them but I know what was right for me and I know it was bad enough for me and I think there are lots and lots of people in the world who it gets bad enough for, but they feel a pressure from society to sort of carry on because it's not, you know, in inverted commas, it's not that bad. And and I feel sad for those people. And I hope that anyone who reads a book who identifies with that little bit might feel a bit more comfortable about where they're at in this case with their with their relationship with alcohol. Mm. 
I think that's the key. And one of the quotes where you, you say it was nothing to do with the quantity or frequency that I drank. It was the impact it, it had on me. I think that is a really important narrative because, as you say, we are, as a society, very quick to to wish to apply labels to things to make it cut and dry, nice and easy. This person fits into this categorization and we move on from there. When I look at when I was doing my reading and a bit of research, I was on the on the internet and looking up bits and pieces about your career. And from the pictures that are there, uh, on a complete surface level, you definitely look like a professional cricketer. If you were trying to say this is what does a professional cricketer look like, there you go, exactly what you'd have. But what I gathered from from things that you've put in the book is that you behave like one in part um, and in in other ways, perhaps with the alcohol, this would be things that you wouldn't expect to find within um, a a cricket player. How did you manage to, for all those years where where you were playing high-level sport, how did you manage to strike a balance, consciously or otherwise, between what was going on on and off the field? did 17 or 18 pre-seasons I won the fitness test every single pre-season I was a professional cricketer at three different clubs you know Somerset Derbyshire and Lancashire so I was always the fittest player um, and I prided myself on that and but that 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 side of me I had the same intensity around that as I did also when I thought it was time to let my hair down you know, they, they were kind of yin and yang. And I guess what my story says is that over that time, that 17, 18 years, me being able to hold that balance became harder and harder. It, to the start, when I was young, it wasn't a problem at all. It was just really like what a lot of young 20-year-olds do. I just was extremely intense about both working hard and playing hard, um, more so than I felt most of the people around me. But then as I got on and on and on, like, you know, eventually I retired at 35, I really struggled with that balance because, in, and I used to often think in my head, where is this all going? You know, where, where is this ending up? Because it's not getting better, it's getting worse. And, um, you know, every time I'd have a big binge, I'd think I have to train harder to, to purge it out of me. And I would, and I'd push myself to the absolute limit. And I would be really, really fit wasn't a healthy balance and it wasn't a sustainable balance and I think you know that's where we look into the the goldfish bowl of professional sports and we see you know like what you said I looked like a professional cricketer and I was and I was successful and I was a captain I was a leader and there are people in professional sport now that we look in and view as in exactly the same way but we don't always know what's going on below the surface and and that's where I challenge people in the the sports industry, particularly clubs that who know what their players are doing, don't just judge them on what's going on on the sporting field because they they might well be able to hold very high standards for what they're doing on the field, but off the field they're starting to show signs of behaviour which are going to bite them as they get on longer and in retirement most definitely. And it's not good enough, in my opinion, for sporting clubs to just think, well, in retirement, they're, they're no longer in our hands. You know, that's 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 not a duty of care. 
you know, we, we look at, and I don't like bringing up him as an example, but we look at a Gaza now and we go, golly, now that's an alcoholic. You know, that's what it looks like. That's the label. And goodness me, whatever happened to him? But come on, there would have been signs of this sort of behaviour throughout all of his footballing career. And did people really do enough at that time to help him with it? Or did we just laugh along with it because he was playing brilliantly? It was all good. It was all fun and games. And then in retirement, while it's up to him, I don't think that's good enough. No, completely agree. There is, generally speaking, whether it's in uh, amateur sport, professional sport, or just any walk of life, a real tendency to react to things and to see when someone has reached a point of crisis and then um, be, be sympathetic and do things that are useful. But it's a much bigger and more important step to have that proactive support beforehand. And I, I don't know what you think, Luke. My My thought often is that people are perhaps a little bit scared to make a, an intervention at, at some point or to even just ask a question because they might feel that they're intruding or they're overstepping a boundary. But um, it's surely got to be something which is part of the conversations that, that go on. Yeah, I, and the, you know, the topic you're kind of, or the subject you're, you're on is like how, what, you know, I've raised the challenge, well, how do, what do we do then? You know, how do we take this on? And that's the the real crux of it. And I think that the important thing is, you know, having an in intervention with someone, which is effectively what happened with me, is, you know, that's when it has reached crisis point. That's when someone comes along and says, okay, enough now. We need to, um, we need to make a really serious change to the way you're living your life. But I knew deep down that I had difficulty a difficult relationship with alcohol for years i knew from my early 20s it was different for me to many other people i knew it there was a different sort of feeling i knew that things just got completely out of control when i started drinking and but i just i was alone with that feeling in my head and i so i just carried it with me and it, it became a sort of dark sh shame a secret that i didn't want to tell anyone and so i think it's not necessarily about interventions. It's about having, I'll call them mentors, but you know, you can call them whatever you wanted, who are entirely independent of the professional teams running. They're not involved with selection. They don't liaise on any sort of coaching elements or selection side of it. But they're people who are near professional teams who understand this area. And when they see players showing signs of it from behavior away from the field, the field, they go towards them and they just have time with them, have a coffee, just check in with them, share their experience, their own personal experience with that player, so that player can identify with them. And, um, you know, so maybe if I take it as my example, I could have identified with someone when I had that secret shame in me and go, God, that's really like me. And so, you, you know, the problems might still escalate, but they might not reach that absolute crisis point because the person, the player might have that person in hand who they've identified with and they reach out for help a little bit earlier and say i'm i'm deteriorating i need to talk to somebody here whereas you know when these things reach the, the pinnacle of, of problems is when they have been a secret not for a week not for months but for years and years and years and i think that's how we help the players mm. yes of course yeah of course and, and i think those are are 
um, examples you use there that there are things that people who do care who who do wish to pass on guidance and and knowledge and experiences to others would be would would surely be pre- be prepared to do in those kind of in, environments when you um had your your time coming i guess back into the the, the world where drink is so so available and particularly with social events it almost seems to be compulsory in a lot of ways you talk about how those initial interactions were were, were, were difficult were tricky and the fact that you, you felt how you would explain to others why you're you're not drinking and, and how that played out um you you mentioned within that that for you not drinking was of course such a big issue because it had been a really big part of what had happened to you over those those years in the past but because drinking was such a big deal to you to to stop it you then felt that it was so important that others would would be as interested if you like in in the reasons for for what was going on how did it work for you in those initial months and perhaps even years and even going forward to today to be in environments where drinking is the default and you're choosing not to yeah well the the best way i can describe it is that when, when i was drinking i was obsessed by drinking i remember one um one year, one uh, cricket season, um, my then girlfriend asked me um, when uh, when there were free gaps within the season, which you know that we might be able to do something. And I um, opened up my diary, and I had already marked the gaps in the season in my diary. And the reason I'd marked them was because they were, they were highlighted as. Uh, times for me to go out those those were like binge sessions mm. they weren't nothing to do with time with a girlfriend and um but, and that's how my mind was working i was kind of obsessed by it you know when was the next window to come for me to be able to to go to go out big time so because i carried that level of obsession around it i i i, I thought other people thought the same so when i stopped drinking i thought oh, this is going to be a massive deal because everyone is going to be as obsessed by it as me. So I remember when I was drinking, when I'd meet someone who wasn't drinking, I was fascinated by them. You know, I'd, I'd quiz them, like, how do you do this? Why do you do this? You know, do you do, and, and I'd go through all of it because that's how I was obsessed with it. So I thought everyone else thought the same. And what I've realised in sobriety is that most people aren't like that. And so, you know, you although... To start with, certainly in that first year, I, I had you know a million and one excuses why I couldn't drink, and the old kidney infection came out more than once. Um, I, a lot of the time, I'd say someone would say, "Oh, do you want a glass of wine?" I said, "No, it's okay. I'm fine. I'm just going to have some water." And the conversation would move on, and it would be no big deal. And um, you know, it's not as bad as as people might think it is. It, it really isn't. Uh, I mean, it's a bit different if you, I guess, you go to the pub with. You know, a group of lads to drink and you have a, a coke that's obviously going to be a bit different but you know in, in some of the social occasions that I go to with cricket or dinners award ceremonies it would the conversation would move on much quicker than I used to expect and um, it really wasn't as big a deal as, as you might think and, and now over eight years on it, it really isn't a big deal at all no 
I don't even think about it. I don't even. I don't feel awkward. I don't. Um, it's just not a problem. I, I can go to social events and have a have a soft drink, and, and no one no one bothers me about it in the slightest. Mm. Yeah, and it it is even aside from having the the very the pronounced difficulties that existed and and the time where you had expert help with this from the time when you first had a drink to the time when you you last had one that's a large number of years I I think about it from my own perspective I I had my first started drinking at the age of 16 stopped drinking as a hobby at the age of 32 I've had the odd drink since then but for me I would look at it and say although I didn't think it at the time drinking was my biggest hobby it was the thing I spent the most money on it was the thing I was more interested in than anything else social things would revolve around that for a large time I played recreational sports really to have the drinks afterwards and whatever would come following that so to eat to take anything out of your life which has been a focal point is turbulent enough but something that has those other impacts mentally physically emotionally is even bigger a step there what is it that has replaced not like for like but what do you do now which makes not drinking easier oh that's um without wanting to repeat myself it's a really really good question i get i guess it's that what replaces those feelings of wanting to go out and binge and you know the pressure cooker that sort of top blow off what what's replaced that um, I think that the simple answer is nothing replaces it like for like. The difference is I'm not a pressure cooker anymore. You know, I don't feel like, you know, this pressure builds up in my life around uh, whatever it might be, uh, pressure at work or anxiety or just dealing with life that builds up, builds up, and then it's like, bang, I need an escape. I don't have that anymore. I have, I have a way of living with life now, which... I, I guess I just enjoy the flow of life and I don't feel like I need that Friday, Saturday night in the pub to sort of let my hair down. I, I just, I, I genuinely don't need it. I don't feel I need it because I just enjoy life for, for as, it, as it is and the good and the bad that comes at me, don't get me wrong, the bad is, is difficult, but, but I accept that it's all part of the flow. And what's replaced it I, in with this time consumed drinking has been time with my loved ones, you know, time now with my fiance, um, time with my children, time enjoying life, um, sitting still in life. Um, I mean, I know it might sound a bit utopian, but it it really is. It's being able to sit and enjoy the beauty of life at any given moment. And I, I don't miss going out and being, you know, I don't miss the pubs at all. Um, because of the beauty of what I've got now, um, and so it hasn't it hasn't replaced it like for like. I just have a very different way of living life now, which is much more about riding the flow of life and enjoying it for what it is, rather than being this pressure cooker of having massive ups and massive downs. Um, it, it's it's beautiful. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, uh, as we move towards wrapping up, an example that you used. Uh, from Australian sport of of Ben Cousins was one that I think is worth uh, chatting a little bit about. And um, one of the things that 
you mentioned with regards his experiences for those who aren't uh, familiar with uh, with Aussie rules footy this was someone who was at the peak of the game who was a handsome guy fantastic body seemingly everything going for him and would definitely be categorized by a phrase like he didn't look like a, an addict and then as his life has has moved on it's certainly the case that there's been some some really difficult things that had gone on there um with your role now as an agent to 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 sports stars how can you pass on the the knowledge and the wisdom that you've gained from your journey to perhaps look out for those things a little bit earlier and help them organize their lives and structure things so that they do have a little bit of resilience to challenges and and be be able to appreciate when things aren't going quite so well yeah i mean ben cousins is a good example of that because you know ben for for people who don't know aussie rules i'm trying to think of the equivalent of ben he'd be like wayne rooney um basically you know that sort of child prodigy the best player by a mile but he was very handsome uh, sort of kind of a Baywatch body would notoriously train harder than anyone was was um, the, t- the tales of his training sessions were, were phenomenal um, but also developed a, 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 an enjoyment for the party life and particularly for drugs and so in his what happened with him was when it started to flare up and he you know his behavior started to get to the place where it was a problem the emphasis was how fast can we get Ben Cousins back on the field? That's what the emphasis was. How, how this is this guy is a great player who's helped us win the the AFL Championship. Uh, how fast do we get him back on the field so we can win again? That's what it was, and that is often the case. If in my role now, and I I have clients who have worked with people who who have shown some of these problems. I don't come from it from a position of how fast do I get them back in their sporting arena so that we can all make money again. That that's that's not the way to do it. it. You know that what happened with Ben is an example for everyone. Actually, what he needed was somebody to go. Getting you back on the sporting field is a secondary to getting you well and to understand what your patterns of behaviour are now. And to, to be healthy again in order to go back on the field, and so that that's what I in my role now how I look at it is is you know that same thing I was talking about with sporting clubs a duty of care. I'm not just managing young sports people to make money out of them. They are young. They're human beings. Young human beings who need guidance. And if they're showing these problems, it's not about going okay. Let's patch them up, get them on the field so they can be brilliant again, and we'll just wait until retirement see what happens. I've got to do better than that. And in that case of Ben Cousins, people needed to do better by him. You know, what happened was he was shamed. You're an overindulgent young man, spoiled, overindulgent young man, gets back on the field as soon as possible and stopped being naughty. And that's what happened. He, he went back on the field for a period of time, then he couldn't help himself, and it, and it started to just unravel until where he is now, which is not, not a pretty sight. So as a manager... My role as a sporting club, we've all just got to be better than that. Yeah, and and I think the the area which is is particularly imp- important is where we we see 
the potential for players and people to be more isolated in a in in a world where we have the tools at our fingertips to connect with people at the other side of the world via our our phones through instant messaging social media there's often those interactions that we used to take for granted after the game and you mentioned in the book that the 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 instinct after a game of cricket would be to have a drink with the the opposition and and your teammates and chat and now players will reach straight for their their phones so some of those connections are, are perhaps lost a little bit and we can all do more just to nudge it back the other way and say yeah your social media is fantastic it's brought us lots of lots of positives but you can't beat that human interaction and those one-to-ones and, and group scenarios no and, and the, the other example I could give around it is, is especially in cricket is you spend an awful lot of time on team buses or in cars with teammates and back in the day when there was no phone you used to talk to each other you know and you talk about where you were at what was going on in your lives what you were doing you know, now you get in the car and everyone just looks at their phone for four hours, you know, on the, on the team bus. And, and there's not that that interaction, which means if you are that that person who's battling away inside your own head, where where do they find the answers? You know, where do they find that interaction to help them out? And I, I think we, I've said this a number of times uh, in recent interviews, is often the advice for people battling with mental health or addiction difficulties is to talk. You know, that we say it's good to talk, and, and that's absolutely right. It is good to talk. But in these times when isolation and social media is, is isolating people more and more, it's really difficult if you're in those times to talk because you, where do you talk to? Would you send a, an Instagram post out? You know, it, it, it's difficult. So I think actually our um, responsibility is to look out for our fellow person. You know, I'd say to professional sports guys, look out for your teammates. If they start displaying behaviour which you've noticed, rather than just kind of playing with your phone for an hour in the, on the journey, why not just go and sit next to them and see how they are? You don't have to. It doesn't make have to be a big song and dance about it. Just you know, look out for your fellow person. And um, and I think in these times when social media is is connecting people. Uh, instantly across the world it's also isolating people who can be sat in the same room with each other and these sorts of problems just need that bridge to be built absolutely I, I think that message is one which has a great deal of simplicity but one which has so much utility to to helping people and I, I can't think of a better place for us to finish what I will say regarding this book is I would really encourage people to to get a copy. As you read it, there'll be things which you can identify with yourself and help you work out that little bit more about yourself and and your self-awareness and and that continuing thing. But there'll also be things in here which can help you understand other people. And there was passages where I read this and thought, I can't really empathise with what Luke's mentioned there. But by being able to read it and consider it, I now think, well, if I saw this kind of thing, how um, occurring in my uh, my orbit of my friends and 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 people that I come into contact with, maybe I'm just a little bit closer to to understanding and being able to help them. So, Luke, thank you for that, and thank you for joining me this morning. No, absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Mark. Thank you.